This week on the show, we celebrate FreeBSD 14's release and we cover a lot of the release notes and good things that are in the release. Also, we show you how you can read your RSS feed on FreeBSD, how you can manipulate PDF files with PDFTK, client LLVM updates to version 16 in OpenBSD, NetBSD security advisory about FTPD, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 535. FreeBSD 14 is out. Recorded on the 23rd of November 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now. Find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Uh, welcome, everyone. We are all happy to hear that FreeBSD 14 is out, and we kind of dedicated this episode, at least mostly, uh, to its release. Now that it's finally officially available, people have found it, of course, on uh, FTP sites or uh, mirrors. But it's not out until the official announcement is out, and that has happened now, so we can really call it a release now. And that's what our headline is about. The release notes we take a closer look at. I forgot to bring the party poppers. <laughs> yeah, champagne is open and we will uh, be happily uh, upgrade our systems as we go along. Or maybe some people already have. But what is actually new in the release for people who are new to this space or haven't or kept a close watch? There's some really good stuff that's come out in the 14.0 release. Uh, I've been looking forward to this release for quite some time because I know there's been some stuff coming up. So it's uh, I've been very interested to move to this ASAP. Um, 13 was great, but 14 is just like mind-blowing. So let's uh, go through a few things that I like of this. Uh, Benedict will go through a few things that he likes of the release. So we'll move on. Uh, for 64-bit architectures, the base system is built with a position-independent executable, PIE support, enabled by default. There's a new ZFS key RC service script, which allows for automatic decryption of ZFS data sets encrypted with ZFS native encryption during boot. The use of FIDO U2F hardware authenticators have been enabled in SSH. And the IGC driver for Intel i225 Ethernet controllers has been added, supporting 2.5 gigabits operation. Over to you, Benedict. Yep. So uh, good stuff all around. And um, some of these for people who are like, yeah, this is not affecting me too much or this is not directly my thing that I'm using. But I think it's not just the release about oh new network drivers or new hardware support. It's just something for everyone is in there that they can use and benefit from. Yeah, so like uh, boot time performance improvements have been made to many kernel subsystems. Uh, we're all noticing a uh, faster boot speed. I think if we down the boot banner, uh, from 10 seconds, I think we'd all see faster boot times uh, mm. now that the rest of the kernel boots so fast. Uh, it's also now possible to add default routes to fibs of other than the primary. So this is where you might have multiple 
uh, routing tables um, or fibs. It allows you to have multiple default routes uh, for uh, different endpoints depending on what's attached to the fib. The Beehive hypervisor and kernel module VMM now supports more than 16 vCPUs in a guest. Address space layout randomization or ASLR is enabled for 64-bit executables by default. The kernel uh, WireGuard driver has been reintegrated. It provides virtual private network interfaces using the WireGuard protocol. KTLS, uh, the kernel TLS implementation, has added receive offload support for TLS 1.3 now. The Beehive hypervisor now has optional TPM on trusted platform module pass-through support. GPU pass-through is now improved in Beehive for AMD and Intel GPUs. MakeFS now has experimental ZFS support. You can create ZFS pools backed by a single disk VDEV containing one or more data sets populated from the staging directory. The port snap utility has been removed. Using, using package install git and then git clone will enable you to get your port tree downloaded to your system. The PW and BSD install programs now create home directories for users in slash home rather than slash user slash home. And the Telnet daemon Telnet D has been removed. That Telnet daemon still exists in port. So if you do require Telnet for some reason on a host, you can install it as a package or from ports. OpenSSL has been upgraded to version 3.0.12. This is a major upgrade from version 1.1.1, which has reached its end of life. FreeBSD now provides experimental ZFS root and cloud init, EC2 AMIs on AWS. And FreeBSD now provides ARM64 as well as AMD64 images on Azure. The SMP system now supports up to 1,024 cores on AMD64 and ARM64. The default speed for serial communication in the bootloaders, kernel, and user land is now 115200 BPS. That might catch a few people out that uh, do serial booting. I, I do a lot of serial booting on devices around uh, my, my network, so uh, that uh, might catch a few people out. OpenZFS has upgraded to version 2.2. This saw the introduction of Blake 3 checksums, which are faster and are now the recommended secure checksums for ZFS datasets. The PF packet filter now supports scrubbing with OpenBSD syntax behavior and also saw the introduction of the match rules are now fully supported as on OpenBSD, not only for just dummy net. Support for the MIPS architecture and related hardware has been removed. FreeBSD 15 is not expected to include support for 32 platforms other than ARM v7. That's my big takeaway from the release of 14.0. Um, right in, tell us what's your favorite bits of 14 and um, what is really going to help you uh, with your uh, FreeBSD endeavors. I mean, there's small things that have uh limited functionality i would say at the moment but they will get extended as uh, developers continue to work on them for example the fwget utility uh, which inspects your system for peripherals that need firmware installs or firmware upgrades and then installs from the uh sources from the other uh, finds the appropriate packages for those uh but at the moment it's only for pci subsystems so 
that was basically a testing ground whether that would work. And uh, now that it's available in the system, they will probably extend it to also include the firmware for uh, other bits of the system. So at the moment, only video firmware for Intel and AMD GPUs is um, known. But uh, this uh, feature has been sponsored by Backoff Automation, by the way. And I guess people will extend that more so you can just say FW get and they will download and figure out if you have the latest firmware available for your uh, system. Yeah, that would be good for uh, network cards, especially. There's a, usually a lot of uh, firmware that gets released uh, from time to time again for bugs on network cards, especially. Uh, there is other devices out there like hard drives and SSDs, NVMe and things like that. Uh, those controllers require updates. But uh, yeah, one thing that I do suffer uh, in production is having to do um, booting off Linux, for example, to do some sort of firmware update for a network card because of you know bugs or something else that I've hit. Yeah. And things like that the SMP subsystem or major system as, as that uh, supports up to 10,024 cores, right? So that's nice. I mean, people are like, yeah, well, I don't have that many cores. Not yet. So many of those will in the future be available. So it's good to have that available now and that the system can adapt to the number of CPUs that you may have. You know, we're seeing, you know, 128, 192 cores um, as standard on a single die. So mm. it doesn't take many CPU sockets to hit those sorts of limits. So, you know, don't discount that. And you look at ARM as well. ARM is notorious for huge amounts of core on a single die. So yeah. uh, that's the reason why we have to go to so many. It might sound ridiculous for a lot of users, <laughs> but um, when you're in cloud or you've got, you know, big, big iron, uh, you know, that's, you, you start to look at 1024 and go, wonder when that's going to be limited up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to be future-proof in this area. Uh, so it's nice to uh, have this bumped up to a bit higher than we currently have. And yeah, there's plenty other good stuff. Uh, of course, new device drivers, as you mentioned, the uh, com console speed got improved. Or so we have a bit more. People were waiting for uh, Wi-Fi drivers, of course. We're still not there yet, but at least we have IW Wi-Fi drivers for Intel wireless interfaces that support chipsets up to Wi-Fi 6E and uh, with the preparations for upcoming BX and SC chipsets as well. So that has, uh, I guess, a couple people more exciting. It's not up to the ideal speed that you would expect from these interfaces, but as people or developers work on this, they uh, will certainly bump this up in future uh, releases or in even individual commits that people can get. And yeah, uh, the NVMD disks have now been named NDA devices by default. So uh, NDA0, NDA1, and so on. Uh, so that's an, a common name for those. And we have uh, that in the system now as a common. Also, um, NVMe error reporting got a bit better. So we can see actually what kind of errors there are or what they mean. And not just a random, you know, number or a, a hex uh, that basically doesn't tell you anything unless you look them up in the <laughs> manufacturer sheets. But uh, it's easier if the system tells us this. And of course, in the storage area, there's a huge uh, increase or a huge drop from ZFS versions. So we get uh, Open ZFS version two. Um, uh, which one was that? Uh, let me see. Uh... 
oh yeah, version 2.2, of course, which include the block cloning feature. By default, is still deactivated since they're still working on it, but it's available if people want to try it out. And people can activate that using the VF. Uh, vfs.zfs.bclone underscore enabled sysctl property. Set that to one and then it's active. And I think the copy uh, program can already make use of that. Um, be sure to uh, not run this too much in production for now, even though it is available. But um, as people shake out this feature a bit more, they will uh, see a bit more features uh, or utilities converted to use these block cloning features. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been discussed a, a fair bit on the OpenZFS calls, um, the uh, block cloning, and you know some of the uh, nuances that people have come across with it. So, yeah, the the general consensus is you know don't bang away with it in production, but uh, certainly give it a shakedown and see if it works for you. Mm-hmm. And as people evolve this more, it will be more stable this way and. Uh, we have, we'll be using it more in the future by because these data uh, sizes just keep getting bigger and bigger and block cloning helps a lot by not having to copy everything all over again. Uh, there's also a scrub error log, so you can execute or look at that with zpool scrub minus e, that's new. And the Blake 3 checksum, which is blazingly fast uh, and compared to the other, even to SHA-256. And these are now the recommended secure checksums. So you can say zpool set checksum equals Blake 3 and for your whole pool. So that is the, your new checksum and uh, it's giving you a bit of a performance boost in this area. They also have corrective ZFS receive, which can heal corrupted data. So if you receive data from a pool, which may have some bits that are out of order or not correct, they have ways to figure this out and store it correctly or correct it on your receiving pool. Also, VDEF and ZPool user properties. I think Alan Jude was kind of involved in that or uh, had some initial uh, ideas or designs even for that. And uh, yeah, similar to dataset user properties, you can now look at or set those uh, individually on VDEFs and um, look at those and or make um, some yeah storage information there. Performance improvements they listed separately for OpenZFS are the fully adaptive ARC, which is a unified ARC that minimizes the need for manual tuning. So you can just use it and without having to fiddle and figure out uh, how much memory should I give it or not, it will adapt to the system that you have or the memory you have available and be just uh, fast and good. Yeah, I'm looking, uh, that I'm looking forward to putting... Uh, that under a bit of pressure testing with Beehive because uh, typically in the past, Beehive uh, and uh, ZFS sort of, you know, you've had to tune ZFS to be only so much arc uh, yeah. and not have too much um, arc signed or allow the adaptive arc to work. Uh, it was always it always played um, havoc when you would spin up a new Beehive instance with, you know, wired memory up and then it would uh, the host would just lock up. Uh, as it tries to you know, rapidly write out the swap, uh, this should um, you know fix those particular issues. But um, yeah, I haven't had a chance at the moment to give it a bit of a shakedown and pressure test it to see uh, how well it works uh, under those conditions. 
yeah, the arc is something you would observe over a long time and see if it works out for you, not just from a five-minute uh, run. It's especially good as long as you can keep a lot of data in there and yeah, sharing this between various uh, like subsystems like Beehive or even jails, uh, you can really ob uh, observe the benefits of having these uh, data cached in memory without having to retrieve them from the storage media. And set standard for the people who are uh, fans of that, they will rejoice that they also have now an earlier board feature in there, which improves the efficiency with uncompressible data. So if it finds, oh, I cannot even get a certain percent of improvement in compression in there and it just stores the block uncompressed without having to run over it with um, many CPUs without getting anything out of it. IO prefetch improvements, this is also good to have and some general optimizations overall in OpenZFS. They also mentioned that ZFS has been enabled on 32-bit PowerPC and PowerPC uh, SPE platforms. So that's interesting for the people who run those and yeah, uh, there's also, yeah, the, the, it's a long list, of course, in the release notes, but uh, some of these things are definitely highlights you should uh, take a closer look at. There's also some late breaking FreeBSD 14 breakages as well. So Colin Percival, uh, who is now the release engineering lead, as of a few days ago, uh, posted up on his blog just some key points that everybody should take away before um, blazing FreeBSD installs out to far and wide. So we'll kick off. In the words of Colin, I assumed the role of FreeBSD release engineering lead a few days ago. And one of my duties in the role was to write and send out the FreeBSD 14 release announcement. To be clear, Glenn Barber did all the work of getting the release ready the final bits had already been copied out to mirrors at that point that I took over. FreeBSD 14 is a great release, but there are a few last minute issues which deserve to be documented, probably somewhere on the FreeBSD website, but I can post to my blog much faster and hopefully we'll get those onto the FreeBSD website later. You need to FreeBSD update fetch install before you upgrade. Moving from FreeBSD 13 to 14, we have the unusual case of a file in FreeBSD 13 having the same name as a directory in FreeBSD 14. This is not something I ever imagined when I first wrote FreeBSD update and my original code didn't handle it. I assumed that I could create everything new before deleting old bits. This was fixed via an errata notice. The link is in the um, document in the show notes. But if you haven't already installed the fix yet, then using FreeBSD update to upgrade to 14.0 will break. FreeBSD update reports 14.0 release approaching its end of life. The FreeBSD update metadata includes the release end of life date, but the wrong value got inserted when the FreeBSD update bits were put together for FreeBSD 14 release. Just ignore the warning. It'll go away with the value being corrected along with the first security advisory or errata notice. Be careful when merging master.password. The default shell for root changed from CSH to SH in FreeBSD 14. When you upgrade to FreeBSD 14, FreeBSD update will prompt you to merge changes to ETC master password. Don't just take the new password line for root since it doesn't have the password. Keep your existing line and change the shell or not if you prefer to stick with CSH. No Pine64 SD card image. One of the SD card images we normally build is for Pine64. 
the build failed. We're not exactly sure why, but offset.inc somehow ended up being full of null bytes, but we decided to go ahead without the image. The Pine64 LTS image did build. EC2 AMIs can't handle binary user data. In order to support the IMDS v2, the EC2 boot scripts were changed from using the fetch to get data from the EC2 instant metadata service to using the newly written AWS EC2 IMDSV to get utility. Unfortunately, a bug in that utility resulted in it assuming that the data from the IMDS is always UTF-8 strings, which is usually true, but breaks if you provide binary user data. In particular, if you generate a tarball and pass it to configuring, it will break. Okay, yeah, so that's good to know. Also, uh, what's not in here is that the thing that bit me, uh, I created a boot environment for, of course, every release or major upgrade of the system, as one should do. And then I happily started upgrading and merging. And then I looked at the release notes and found, oops, the OPIE, one password in everything, a utility got removed. But I still had some vestiges of it in my PAM.d uh, files uh, that would bite me after the next reboot when the system told me, nope, there was a system error in OpenPAM processing this rule set because there's an item in there that's not in the system anymore, which is the one password in everything. And that did not make me log into the system to fix the problem. Not even root could do that, of course, because PAM was broken. So, um, of course, I could uh, save myself two ways. I could have started a uh, rescue CD or live CD environment and uh, mount my uh, local pool and change my uh, PAM.d files in there and then reboot or revert back to the original boot environment. That's what I did. And then I mounted the broken boot environment with BCTL mount, and then it gives me some temp weird uh, name. And then I can mount this into my system like any other mount point. Then I get into or can change root into this directory, which is now my new root from the old system. And there I could happily make changes to the PAM.d files to remove all the OPIE uh, vestiges. And then I could exit out of this environment, reboot into the broken environment, and then it was happily booting and let me log in again. Yeah. So that that was, it's in the release notes, it, it's mentioned there. Uh, another thing that could bite people is in the, um, they mentioned a little further down in the release notes that people should be aware that they need to upgrade their bootloader blocks because of the new ZFS if they upgrade their block. Uh, their block, their pool, of course, then you need to figure out whether you need updated uh, bootloaders. And they mentioned that by running uh, EFI boot manager v to figure out what's your current boot block and which disk it's currently booting from. And then you need to mount the uh, uh, EFI partition, copy the new loader, which is in etc, uh, loader.efi and copy that to the correct path in slash boot slash efi and then some couple of subdirectories. Typically, if you've uh, done a clean build um, initially a, a while ago, for example, and just in place to upgrade there and you've actually done an efi build, the boot efi directory will be mounted um, as part of the uh, system boot process. So uh, it's already there. Mm. Okay. Re re then I was just yeah. extra careful. Yeah, ready, ready and waiting. <laughs> But um, as a few people have found out in the past, um, you can't always guarantee which one, if it's going to be the boot um, you know, 
x64.efi or the loader.efi, you don't know which which way that the actual loader is going to go. It's probably safer just to copy the loader.efi into both locations um, with the existing file names that are in the respective locations. That way you're safe. Just depends on you know what uh, UEFI boot. Um, is going to be, you know, you never know where your disks are going to end up. So mm. just keeps you safe, um, especially if you've got root on ZFS and uh, you've upgraded your pools. Yeah. yeah, so that's good to know. And I think that these are the only stumbling blocks um, and you can always save yourself going back uh, to a working system, either by using boot environments or having backups made in the first place before the upgrade, like every uh, good uh, sysadmin would do uh, as a practice. Okay, uh, then we have, so uh, Vermadon in uh, preparation for the release being out, I think two weeks ago already, has mentioned some of the uh, FreeBSD valuable FreeBSD 14 release updates in a blog post of its own uh, in the valuable uh, Unix news series or valuable news series that he does. And uh, there they, he lists also some good things that are in the release. Many of them we have already mentioned. A uh, couple of things that I found interesting in there, of course, the change from the send mail, it's finally out. No one needs to run any send mail equals non uh, RC scripts anymore. Uh, the change to DMA, that's now the default mail agent, uh, local mail agent in uh, FreeBSD 14. And also that, uh, for example, Telnet D has been removed. It's available as a port, FreeBSD-Telnet D. So if you really want Telnet D, aka you don't, um, you can find it in the ports collection now if you really miss it. Merge Master has also been removed. It's now using ETC Update or we recommend to use FreeBSD or ETC Update. So that is other things are uh, pretty much the same that we mentioned already. The NFS changes are also quite interesting, but he also focuses on the ZFS changes and some of the f- uh, couple Beehive uh, things that are in the release. He also has a nice uh, sponsor listing. Uh, he basically does a big uh, yeah, grab and TR uh, pipe and figures this way out how like who did most of the uh, sponsors for this release like he's grabbing the sponsored bylines and orders that um, in a proper way so that we can see which companies or which individuals gave uh, or their support to that release does he have who the uh, the, the top companies are there yeah, so uh, the top one is the FreeBSD Foundation with 46 commits. That's not too big of a surprise because a lot of staff people are working on the release as well. So that always gets the sponsored by line. Uh, second one is uh, Netflix with 11 lines. So thanks, Netflix, for employing people to or give them time to work on these things. Uh, Clara Systems is third with seven sponsored by lines. And then there's Colin Percival himself uh, with seven ones. So uh, he has done a lot of work in the AWS or EC2 space, and also the bootloader improvements are uh, on his uh, record. So we all thankful for that. Then uh, number four is with four commits, Rubicon Communications, LLC, NetGate, and then it's Jupiter as well with four sponsored uh, commits. Then there's StormShield with two, NetApp, Microsoft, uh, Kumacon, SAS, uh, InnoGames, all with uh, two, uh, as well as Zen Armor and Google with two. So Zen Armor has one, 
and then the scale engine, OpenSense, Modurum, Intel, uh, EPSRC, Dell EMC, Celsio, Backhoff, ARM, and Ampere Computing, all with one. That seems low, but overall, it's just what in, uh, is in the release and not just um, overall commits they do every day or uh, regularly in the source tree. Yeah, like, you know, there could be, you know, one of those uh, organizations that had only one, but that might be a huge chunk of code that had to go in there. So, you know, don't, yeah. don't, don't just tag it up as being, you know, oh, they had the, the most amount. Yeah. Quantity. <laughs> yeah. Quantity over quality or no, quantity over, over bulk volume. And you don't also know how much time and thinking needed to, or a testing into each of these needed to happen before it was actually committed as a workable uh, part of the system. So yeah, thanks all around for everyone who was involved in the release and of course also the people who wrote the release notes and all the things that come together to make a release like that. And yeah, test it out, give feedback, send uh, yeah anything that you found or let us know how your install went, uh, like a little uh, blog post maybe for future episodes. That's all the interesting things that we are interested in here and other people can also benefit from maybe your experiences or what new cool feature you're using now so these are all uh, nice things to have send those into feedback at bsdnow.tv all right so there's other stuff happening in the bsd space for example, in the news roundup, while well, we stay a little bit with FreeBSD here, uh, there's an article that we found about reading your RSS feed on FreeBSD. Uh, so this is Nico's blog. Uh, we'll kick off with our setup, reading your RSS feed on FreeBSD. So we'll work through the setup and then we go through the configuration. This is only a short article. So you know, click on the link in the show notes and uh, follow along at home. Setup. As explained in my article about news, Nextcloud News, I'm reading a lot more blogs these days. Now I've implemented Nextcloud News on my home setup to be able to follow along across different devices. I'm already using Photon on my Selfish OS phone and Nextcloud's web interface when I'm at home. I wanted a way to read news on my FreeBSD laptop. Choosing the right RSS client. I initially wanted something with a GUI, but when I tried installing RSS Guard from the FreeBSD packages, for some reason it wouldn't work. When looking at other options, I found Newsboat, a text RSS reader, so I decided to give it a try. The configuration. I'll be honest, I reused this article, so there's a, a link to a, another article by Gideon Wolf. Installing Newsboat is as simple as package install Newsboat. And then you configure your um, .config slash newsboat slash config in your home directory. And he followed both Gideon's article and tweaked it a bit for his configuration using newsboat documentation. He wanted newsboat to refresh when started as well as on a regular basis. So he added the below to his configuration with auto reload yes and reload time 1800. Newsboat in action. Once done, this is how Newsboat looks. And he's got two uh, diagrams there of what Newsboat looks like in the terminal. To wrap up, I've used Newsboat only for a few days now, but I'm happy with it. It's good to have a text-based RSS reader 
and I like how easy it is to configure and use with the key bindings. Yeah. RSS is nice. Wasn't it uh, at one point replaced by Adam or something? And uh, not sure how to yeah, track the latest. Yeah, RSS is one of those things that, um, you know, it's got a, a good following and hmm. um, and it works really well, especially when you go aggregate a lot of different news points. Uh, fortunately, I don't follow enough news or, or <laughs> blogs and that sort of stuff, so I've never really had to worry about it. I usually just, you know, spend the time to poodle through things, but I do know people have got big aggregate feeds. Um, there's a lot of people that, uh, you know, produce other podcasts and that sort of stuff, and they need to take those aggregate feeds to, um, you know, build out their show notes. So it's actually quite um, a useful tool for, for you know, a variety of people, developers, um, podcasters, you name it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Uh, next up is another article we found on the Data Swamp, uh, Celine's blog, uh, Manipulate PDF Files Easily with PDFTK. So if you are interested in that, follow along. Uh, introduction reads, I often need to work with PDF. Sometimes I need to extract a single page or add a page. Too often I need to rotate pages. Fortunately, there's a pretty awesome tool to do all these tasks. It's called PDF-TK. I think TK stands for Toolkit. And she links, of course, to the official website on GitLab. Operations. PDF-TK command line isn't the most obvious out there, but that's not hard. Uh, extracting a page. To extract a page requires a cat subcommand, and we need to give a page number or a random page, uh, or a range of pages like that, not a random page. <laughs> for instance, extracting the pages 11, and from 16 to 18, from the my underscore PDF file to a new file, export PDF can be done with the following command, pdftk, uh, the input is my pdf.pdf, and then cat 11, which is page 11, and then 16-18, because we want 16, page 16 and 18, then output, and then follows the output file name, export.pdf in this case. Okay. Next is merging PDFs into a single PDF. Merging multiple PDFs into a single PDF also uses the subcommand cat. In the following example, you will concatenate the PDF first PDF and second PDF into the merged PDF. So that's PDFTK, first PDF, second PDF, cat, output, merged PDF. Note that they are concatenated in their order in the command line. Then rotation. PDF-TK comes with a very powerful way to rotate PDF pages. You can specify pages or ranges of pages to rotate, the whole document or only odd even pages, for example. If you want to rotate all the pages of a PDF clockwise into east direction, we need to specify the range 1 till the end, which means first to last page. So that goes PDF-TK input PDF, rotate 1 dash end east, Output rotated PDF. Okay, so that's a bit uh, of a syntax you need to get used to, but it's not too weird. If you want to select even or odd pages, you can add the keyword even or odd between the range and the rotation direction. So 1 till 10 odd west or 2 8 even east are valid rotations. Okay. Then reversing the page ordering. If you want to reverse how pages are in your PDF, you can use the special range end minus one, which will go through the pages from the last to the first one with the subcommand cat. We will only recreate a new PDF. PDFTK input PDF, cat end minus one output reversed PDF. And she concludes with PDFTK has some other commands. Most people will need to extract, merge, rotate pages, but take a look at the documentation to learn about all PDFTK features. 
PDF are usually a pain to work with, but PDFTK makes it very fast and easy to apply transformation on them. What a great tool. I didn't know where this tool has been all my life. This is awesome. I, I, I so need this tool. Um, yeah. I'm going to go and play with it tomorrow. Guarantee you. It's like, <laughs> instead of... I also found another tool recently. It's called OCR, my PDF. So when you have something that has, uh, it has been scanned uh, and... Of course, you want to extract text from it and you just can't because it doesn't recognize the where the words end or what the actual characters are. So it does OCR over an existing PDF and then can retranslate it into a PDF and then you can really copy the the words out of it, right? So that's useful. How, how accurate is that? Have you found it uh, reasonably accurate? Because I know a lot of OCRs are all back in the old days. OCR was sort of a hit and miss sort of thing. Is it, um, is it no, this really is good? quite good. It even uses some machine learning to identify which, you know, glyphs are there and what kind of uh, font this was, the original. And that's quite good. So, And it can also re-encode it into a PDF-A, uh, so an archive format, so you cannot manipulate it anymore. We have it. We had to use in the in the university where we had these, uh, you know, we have this big, you know, uh, departmental council where everyone, you know, makes decisions, and then uh, usually the dean and the person who did the the protocol in the first place they sign. And then they scan it and then publish it to everyone. But I wanted to copy certain things out of it. So that didn't work anymore after the, the signatures were added and it was scanned. So I used PDF, uh, OCR my PDF. And that got now detected the proper text. And then I could copy the sections out of it. And the, the signatures were still preserved. We'll have to get you to write a blog article about that so we can talk about <laughs> it on the show. Right. Yeah, maybe in the FreeBSD journal, that could be a thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so we could cover it in a future episode here. <laughs> All right. Speaking uh, of just next? speaking of journals, uh, over <laughs> on the OpenBSD journal. Uh, so Theo gave us a bit of a heads up uh, that there was some some destructive changes that were coming, and, and this is basically what it was about. That there was a Clang LLVM update to version sixteen. So uh, there was a bit of a you know, put a hold. If you're running snapshots, put a hold. Don't don't go doing anything uh, too drastic until all these changes went in and um, any of the fallout was uh, rectified during the recent. Um, developer summit that they had so uh in a long series of commits robert nagy uh, updated clang llvm in current to version 16 and then there's the commit message in the journal naturally this has been involved supporting work elsewhere in base and in ports so uh there is uh, still ongoing work in ports for uh, fallout from this uplift so uh don't um you know if you need your machine for production use, you know, probably still hold off for a while, but a lot of the ports packages do need testing. So um, as they're done, you know, they're they're making their way through the build process and completing the build process. So, you know, if you like living on the edge and you there is some packages that you do use, um, go and uh, update to the latest snapshot and then start using those tools to make sure that they're fit for purpose. Because before we know it, April will be here and uh, the ports tree will be locked and uh, we'll be getting ready for another release. So um, uh, get in early and uh, start calling out the bugs as soon as possible. 
Yeah, we don't want them in any kind of release or any kind of version. So the sooner we find them, the easier they are uh, getting worked on and fixed. That's for sure. Uh, speaking of uh, errors or critical things, some of these bugs may cause uh, vulnerabilities in uh, subsystems and NetBSD put out a security advisory for multiple vulnerabilities in FTPD and that should be uh, of interest for the NetBSD people out there or also familiar uh, projects or similar projects that use their version. Um, these are uh, multiple vulnerabilities in FTPD, so it affects NetBSD current and NetBSD 10 beta prior to the 1st of October 2023. Also, NetBSD 9.3 up until uh, 8 or up back into version 8.0. So all of these are affected and TNFTPD prior to TNFTPD 2023 10 uh, October 1st. So after... Uh, so if you're... Uh, on a version of NetBSD that is uh, from the 10th of October 2023 that has been fixed already. Uh, all the versions before it need to have these uh, vulnerabilities fixed and there's patches available. So the severity, remote, authentic unauthenticated attackers may get directory listing, potential buffer overflows. And of course, they provided fixes for NetBSD current, 10, 9, and the 8 branch as well as the TNFTPD uh, version, versions from the 10th of October 2023. Please note that the NetBSD releases prior to 8.2 are no longer supported, so these don't get these uh, security updates. It's recommended that all users upgrade to a supported release. Uh, they list the uh, technical details and uh, why the error exists there. Uh, I think we can... Uh, happily skip that because I guess many people uh, are aware of them or can read them if they're interested in that in the details. The solutions and workarounds are basically uh, temporary ones, disable FTPD, right? So if that's not active, then no one can exploit it. Uh, you can also apply a fixed version from a release engineering branch, fetch a fitting base.tgz and um, then extract that and have the fixed binaries available and they detail in the uh, vulnerability announcement how to do that and then you should have a uh, fixed NetBSD FTPD then you can still activate it. FTP is one of those protocols that you know should have died a few decades ago. Uh, yeah it's been plagued yeah. by a lot of errors and vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's you know I can see the use there's some still some uses that people have in, on internal networks and that sort of stuff but there's no reason to sort of have that running now it's it's slow it doesn't traverse nat um correctly there's you know numerous other things and you know there's uh, an exploit every second week with um, some flavor of ftp daemon so the best thing is to use you know ssh or sftpd uh for your uh, transferring, uh, bi-directional transferring, or you know, the web. There's plenty, plenty of you know, very secure web servers if you're running a mirror of some sort out there. So you know, take your pick of your poison on that. But yeah, FTP is one of those ones that we should all be letting go of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like we say when we close a, uh, an FTP correction. Bye. <laughs> BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. 
Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, people have asked for it and uh, submitted it, and so it's time for feedback and questions this week. Uh, we have a question from Brad, uh, Zpool disk allocation questions. So that one goes, howdy gents. First, welcome to the show, Jason. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I have a quick question about allocating disks in a Zpool when you have a considerable number of drives. So I have several TrueNAS boxes at work and we just received three more units that should be coming online in the next few weeks. Okay, so far so good. Traditionally, what I have done is to set up my pool, say of 60 drives, in 10 6 drive rates at 2 VDEVs. When I initially did it, it was using 6 10 drive VDEVs, but found it to become problematic over time. Okay. I could then arrange those 10 VDEVs into a rates at 2 for my actual pool. The absolute redundancy has stood me in good stead. Okay. However, I started thinking that perhaps this is overkill. Would it be better to do 10 6 drive rates at 1 VDEVs and then do the pool as a rates at 2? Or perhaps make the VDEVs rates at 2 and the pool rates at 1? Or should I just keep doing what I'm doing? Uh, I want a reasonable amount of redundancy for data protection, but I feel like I'm leaving additional storage space on the table. What is the best practice for something like that? So this is where we usually wheel out um, Alan and say, yeah, where's, hey, hey where's Alan? Alan when we need him? Yeah, where's Alan? <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> My observations with this is I don't know what you're using, uh, what sort of data is sitting on this, what sort of access or your IO requirements or anything like that. So I really can't sort of make a, you know, uh, a really informed decision of the best way to go here. Um, I think you are doing a bit of overkill here with um, two two lots of RAID Z2, so your underlying VDEVs and then your over, overlaying pool. I would probably, you know, scatter my drives across multiple um, HBAs, so then that way you don't um, have an issue of all the drives falling offline and really hammering that uh, top Z pool RAID Z2 overlay. Personally, I'd probably, if you need that sort of redundancy on the over, the Z pool overlay, I'd, I'd keep it down to RAID Z1. I don't think you need much more coverage than that, but keep your underlying VDEVs as RAID Z2 across multiple HBAs, and then that way you've got protection if you lose a HBA um, at the RAID Z1 level at the top, and you've also got um, a bit rock protection and uh, drive value protection at the RAID Z2 level 
at your individual VDEVs. So that's the way um, I see it. Um, I think you're wasting a lot of this space in your current configuration, but you know it's up to you on how much you like your data, but I'd prefer to spend a bit more money and replicate my data off that host onto another host so you have um, your data protected um, physically away from each other rather than just trying to have it all protected on the one host. Yeah, there's the redundancy in the pool and there's also the pool independent redundancy if you get the meaning. So having that offsite somewhere or in a separate pool on a different system on another continent or whatever is better than just relying on the redundancy in one pool. As good as that may be, there could still be errors that could like affect the the firmware or the I don't know the yeah, the whole HBA could die, right? And if that's the wrong cabling been done up front, then that doesn't work well. And also if you have the money to to spend on that many disks and uh, the redundancy to keep it up with as higher disk capacities come out. Yeah, you might have a whole backplane go um, that all the HBAs are plugged into. And, and there's also been cases where ZFS is just balked for no apparent reason and um you know trying to recover all that data that was sitting on just that one place because you don't have a a additional pool in another host somewhere else um you know they're two that's two different conditions that you know um if the data is really really important to you when you're going to this extent to ensure that the data remains consistent in one machine uh that money could probably be better spent by you know bringing a second machine into into the mix in either the same data center or a different data center you know i have different machines that are sitting interstate just for this particular reason uh mm. for, uh if you know there it was a catastrophic of, uh event i've still got the data and i know that the data is still consistent and um uh, spinning somewhere else and i can pull that data whenever i want to so I think that is a good uh, starting point to think about. So if other people have similar setups or other recommendations, definitely chime in and we'll be happy to link back to this issue and we already talked about it. Uh, okay. Yeah, and Brad, you know, if you've got, um, if if there's a specific you know, workload that you've got going on here, um, you know, do share that. Uh, that makes us to be able to make a bit more of an informed decision in uh, assisting you moving forward. Oh yeah, that too. It always depends on the use case, and we can we make give general recommendations. But it's uh, always hmm, what is this used for, and what's what we don't get as information where where uh, this might be relevant to change certain parameters. Next email okay. comes in from Kevin. Mm -hmm. uh, hi Benedict, Tom, Jason, and JT. So just the upfront here, and this is going to be an Emacs question. Um, both of us aren't Emacs users. So, um, you know, if you've got, you know, listen along and if you've got some fe fe uh, feedback or input that you wish to uh, help us out here with this uh, question or um, email, uh, please do send it in the feedback at bsdnow.tv. I miss Alan Jude, but I still get to hear him alongside Jim Salter on 2.5 admins. BSD Now content has remained fun and engaging. Thank you, Jason, for stepping up. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that. After running FreeBSD on servers and accessing over SSH for a few years, I decided to try it on my laptop. 
I discovered my preferred editors, Emacs and MG, and the backspace invokes help instead of deleting the previous character. Backspace is also used to page up and back in info, the Emacs built-in documentation system. On local FreeBSD, Backspace does not work in info. It instead tries to it tries to invoke help recursively. Alt V to scroll up still works, like in man pages. This problem does not show up in Emacs or MG running on remote FreeBSD when SSHing from a non-FreeBSD client laptop. Both editors function properly there. The problem manifests locally on FreeBSD and on any remote server when SSHing from the FreeBSD and even in a web console view of a cloud VPS running FreeBSD, even from OpenBSD or Linux locally. I found a workaround in the Emacs documentation is to rebind control H from the help menu to backspace command. Uh, and then he's got uh, some links there. Uh, this means I can no longer invoke Emacs help using control H. I would have to type meta X help, aka alt X help to bring up help. It's reasonable to apply this fix to Emacs and MG locally on my FreeBSD laptop. But to apply that also on all my remote non-FreeBSD servers, in case I SSH to them for FreeBSD, that seems to be a bit excessive or excessive to not modify them and only SSH to them from non-FreeBSD clients. I included additional findings on SCTY Erase and Erase2 related to this in my email below from last year. Do I have sufficient detail at this point to file a bug report about changing the default way FreeBSD handles backspace to control H? I also regularly use VIE and NeoVim. Let me know and thanks for the great show. So I think it definitely is enough to file a bug report with enough details and things you tried already. Uh, but we individually, as mentioned, don't have too much Emacs experience uh, to help originally. But if you file a bug report, chances are that someone will look at it and either say, oh, you need to either make this kind of adjustment or, oh, yes, this has not been implemented yet. We need to fix this in the system so that you can also use it as you are uh, or was it intended in other systems. This doesn't, um, this also may be to terminal emulation. Uh, so your terminal variable that's passed to the remote host when you log on to it uh, from your FreeBSD will be different from, say, if you, you know, went from a VT320 terminal or something like that. So it would be interesting if you changed your turn command to, say, like something simple like VT100 or something like that. Um, I can't remember what the, the standard one is uh, when you're just going from, a, say, a laptop or um, a MacBook or something like that. So um, maybe try changing to a more simpler terminal and see if you still get the same issue. Yeah, so that rules it out also. Um, and when that's not working, then definitely file a bug report or send something uh, in the FreeBSD forums. Maybe someone else has uh, encountered that before or has a solution already. And if not, people can try out or discuss certain solutions you can still try. And if someone found it, then link back or send this to feedback at BSD now, then we can let everyone know who's listening and maybe wondering if we ever have a solution found in the future. Okay, uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode. Definitely uh, give us feedback at feedback at BSD now TV. We also have a Telegram channel. 
t.me slash bsdnow is the address. And uh, there is, uh, uh, yeah, discussions happening about audio issues that I may have or <laughs> other things you liked about. Oh, there's the lots episodes. of discussions happening in there at the moment. <laughs> at so, the moment, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're all in there. Tom, I think we Benedict found and myself are in there. So, yeah, come yeah. and join us. Mm -hmm. It's cool. And uh, other ways to reach us, of course, uh, Twitter or X, uh, where we announce new episodes that are coming out. And also, if you want to support this episode or other future episodes, make them happen, then patreon.com slash bsdnow is a way you, where you can give us a bit of money towards that end. All right. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Catch you later.